Easy Chair number 57, October 14, 1983, still at the Beverly Garland, because we have the opportunity here to talk with some of our Chalcedon friends. Uh, this hour we have with us Dr. Forrest Chapman. Uh, Dr. Chapman, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and your background, and then we'll get on to the subject at hand. I'm a uh, general practitioner in Romulus, Michigan, and uh, I have been, of course, very interested in the conservative movement, and I've been a fan of Calcedon for several years. And uh, I've been in the libertarian movement and now in the tax movement that uh, developed in Detroit, uh, Pontiac area, uh, Flint, uh, recently. Mm -hmm. Otto, do you want to lead off? Well, as I understand it, uh, part of your objection to the Michigan tax system is based upon the fact that uh, first you think we're using funny money and you don't believe that that really qualifies as which to pay debt and secondly uh, you're of the opinion that because land is taxed in the United States the government of Michigan and other states have placed themselves into the position of being the landowners to whom we must pay, in effect, rent, which they call taxes. Is that true? Yes, indeed. I think that this has developed over many years. The concept of a lodial title was introduced, uh, at least in a grand scale in this country, where the holder of land uh, in an allodium bears uh, no tenorial uh, obligations, and he owns it outright. The term allodium is new to just about everyone, including most lawyers I know. It comes from the French allure, meaning freehold. And a true freehold is land held without any other obligations to anyone, and that the individual holding that land is sovereign. Now, the taxation in lands is an implication that the state is paramount title holder, and in my particular state, there are no titles, land titles, that I can find exist. The lawyers will tell you that the deed is the uh, somehow bound up with title. But you see, title uh, has gone the way uh, somewhere along the line, and we're not certain where, but my, uh, my 1855 dictionary describes an allodium as a freehold without tenorial rights, and that uh, an allodium is the opposite of feud. All lands in England are held in feud, and most lands in the United States are held in allodium. Now, the state has no claim and cannot tax or rent, if you will, lands held in allodium. Titles have disappeared. The state does not ask getting at the other end of things that we discussed, does not ask for money in any form on a tax bill. It asks for a number. It has no dollar sign. And I believe it's because they know if they asked for dollars, they would have to describe the substance of those dollars. Further investigation... I found that the only law describing the substance of taxation in Michigan was no law at all. It uh, goes something like this. 
No receiver shall be required to receive anything but gold and silver coin, uh, treasury notes, Federal Reserve bank notes, silver and gold certificates. Now, all of these at one time were redeemable in gold, these paper instruments, but do not exist today. And this, but when we look at that for a second, we find out, let's go back. No receiver shall be required. Does it tell us what the receiver is required to receive? It does not. So, since the laws previous to this law that were, had substance, and asked for substance, were rescinded each time the new law was in place, the the present law, having a, a, a limitation only on future obligations of the state, would be null and void anyway when they make another law, whatever substance they require. In effect, there is no substance required for taxation in Michigan, and hence the government is really operating out of law. You dealt with a matter of ownership, a very brilliant younger uh, historian, Jonathan Hughes, has dealt with this matter. In the colonial period, ownership was futile. The lands were uh, granted by the crown to the colonists, subject to the prior and final ownership of the state, so that the title holders had the right to pass on the use of the land or to trade the use of the land, but the ultimate title resided in the crown. Now, uh, the crown, of course, had the right to... Uh, eminent domain over the land. It had the right to designate certain timbers as to be used by the king's navy as masts and the like, so that any piece of timber so marked could not be touched by the owner of the land or anyone but a crown agent. Subsequently, this kind of language, while remaining in the law, disappeared in its meaning. And Chancellor Kent, in his commentaries, in speaking of this, referred to the language as a relic without meaning, and said that the title was vested in the individual who owned the land. However, subsequently, the U.S. Supreme Court, in a grain elevator case, I believe, a Michigan case, or Illinois, I believe, reasserted the old premise, asserting that the federal government was the true holder of title to the land, that it replaced the crown. Now, since then, that premise has been greatly expanded. And to me, the important premise here is the question of sovereignty. In terms of Scripture, the Bible says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. And as some of our listeners know in our uh, Sunday studies, I'm going through a theology of the land in which I'm dwelling on the implications of this. So, basically, the ownership of the land is a religious premise. If the state is God walking on earth, the state is the true owner of the land. If the God of Scripture is what he says he is, then he is the owner of the land. And the taxation of one or the other will prevail in terms of the faith of the people. So, to me, this is an important issue because what we have today is a humanistic 
social order, and therefore we are compelled to render unto Caesar. Well, now, if we were to continue this, well, people in the Soviet Union have to pay taxes to the Soviet government to occupy a house in the country. But what precisely is the difference between somebody occupying a house in the country in the Soviet Union and occupying a house in the country in the state of Michigan or California or any part of the United States? I think the difference is essentially one of degree. I believe that because of our Christian background, our people still regard property differently. The states and the federal government are not ready to state the full implications of the present laws of land tenure. However, unless we get back to Christian premises, Christian faith, we are going to go in the same direction as the Soviet Union. Our difference is essentially one of degree. We are two humanistic powers. This is why I believe the, so the uh, federal government is much better in its treatment of the Soviet Union than it is of the people of the United States. You mean the federal government of the United States has more respect for the Soviet Union than it does for the citizens of this country? I feel that it is more readily in alliance with the people of the Soviet Union or the government of the Soviet Union than it is with us. In a sense, we are treated as the enemy. We are taxed, uh, we are badgered, we are at every turn treated as people who are the enemies of the bureaucracy. Well, let's expand it a bit. Uh, we're talking now, we should really, I think, not just be talking about the Soviet Union and the USA, but the entire globe. Uh, for instance, in Britain, until recently, they had exchange controls, and you could only take out a certain amount of money from Britain, which meant, in effect, that uh, the British money, as far as the British citizens is concerned, was really only useful as a means of exchange within Britain itself. We all know that the Soviet Union kopecks, uh, or rubles, rather, are not exchangeable anywhere in the world. There's no bank that will exchange them for anything because outside the Soviet Union, the ruble doesn't seem to have any value. I believe they have a gold ruble that does have a value. I'm not positive about that. Now, the United States government under Lyndon Johnson at one time uh, was going to limit the amount of money we could carry out of the United States to something like $200. That was shouted down. But right now there is a limit. It's 10000 If you go to the bank and draw out 10000 or more dollars, uh, you are violating the law if you take it out of the country. You can only draw $9,999.99. That's the limit. Well, in Britain today, the <clears throat> small farmer is beginning to disappear. Taxation, death taxes in particular, are wiping out the small farmers. The same thing is happening here. Taxation is leading to the destruction of family holdings, family farms. For example, north of here, one uh, rancher who bought a couple of thousand acres in the Depression worked hard then and subsequently to pay for it, and he paid uh, something like a dollar or two per acre, now finds that that land is priced from 500 to $1,000 an acre. And there's no way his sons can inherit it. They can't pay the tax on that sort of value. That's right. 
All it does is to provide a modest income for himself and his sons. Now, this is confiscation. Well, this, of course, applies to corporations and companies as well. Yes. Uh, so families have to sell the company business in order to pay the uh, tax yes. due upon inheritance. Now, they've relaxed the inheritance laws to some extent, have they not? In California, they have abolished them. They've but, abolished them. But here, the federal government still has estate taxes, death taxes. What's the situation with regard to inheritance and the small farms in Michigan? Because that historically has been a state of small farms and very fine ones. I can't tell you that. I think that the state uh, inheritance taxes, and I was executor of my parents' uh, will at the death of my last parent, and as I understand, the state inheritance tax was much heavier than the federal inheritance tax, and I think they tended to be that way. But I have no uh, familiarity with farms. I uh, merely would uh, like to get back to your comment on sovereignty, and that's an interesting definition. I believe that a person must be sovereign on land to occupy as God instructed us to do. In other words, we acknowledge God is sovereign over the world, but he intended us to own property. And our declaration, uh, although somewhat muddled in the area of property by the muddle-minded, often muddle-minded Thomas Jefferson, never he, he replaced property with the pursuit of happiness, which is a really and truly a meaningless uh, thing. But of course, our Constitution in two places acknowledges life, liberty, and property as a right of man. And therefore, sovereignty is a right of an individual. It cannot be a state, a collective, because it's a right. And the Ninth Amendment applies. Uh, Ninth and Tenth Amendments, as you know, the Supreme Court just doesn't like to use at all because it, it's the limiting of powers and rights or, or the, uh, uh, the distribution of rights. Now, sovereignty has to apply to a man owning land. And if we Christians are going to occupy it, we're going to have to own it as earthly sovereigns of the sovereign God. Now, this is my understanding of it. And since sovereignty is a right, only an individual can possess it. And a king, for the divine right of kings and so on, and that struggle between the nobles and England uh, went on, uh, we still have the concept of sovereignty as control over land. Otherwise, God, if he didn't intend us to own property, he wouldn't have commanded us not to steal. Since everything's his, how could we steal from him? So obviously intended for each of us to own property and to be responsible for that property in his name. Well... I would uh, prefer to drop the use of the word sovereignty where it applies to man because sovereignty is another word for lordship and only God is sovereign, only God is lord. But we are stewards and our title to the land is as stewards under God and we hold it as a trust from him. So we are trustees over a piece of property. And therefore, because we are trustees, we have to use that land or that property or whatever it is that we possess with a sense of responsibility to God, who alone is sovereign. We are stewards, trustees. But wouldn't you say that the government has intervened and said the government is the steward? Uh, the government is going to see to it that uh, land is sequestered away from human beings lest they uh, injure the environment. I would say the government says 
we are the sovereign and our bureaucracy are the, uh, constitutes the steward class. That's, a, that's true, yes. 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 So they are there to tell us uh, what the word of the new Lord, the new God, is. Well, they come in in a sort of a priestly assumption, don't yes. they, of their role. They uh, assume that whatever they do is for a higher power and a greater cause and a nobler uh, line of reasoning than the selfish interests of individuals. Yes. There was a very important little book written uh, well over a hundred years ago in Germany by a Catholic writer, and the title of it was The New God. And what he predicted writing, and it may have been before 1850, uh, it was well over a hundred years ago. He predicted that the world was seeing the development of a new God who would command men and wage war against all other gods, that the whole world would fall down before this God, who would command all property, all children, the total lives of people. This is a remarkably prophetic little work. Sounds really like a, uh, a version of the apocalypse, doesn't it? Yes, and I think it's predictions coming much earlier than George Orwell were remarkably perceptive. I read that book about uh, 45 years ago, I think, and I've never forgotten it. What an impression. Well, how do the courts of Michigan take to this argument, Dr. Chapman? Well, I have... Uh argued the money question in the lower court, in the circuit court, and of course the judge was very uh, uh, not ignorant, but he certainly uh, didn't understand that the state of Michigan and all states are bound by Article 1, Section 10. No state shall make anything but gold and silver coin a payment and tender of debt. And that was, of course, Roger Sherman and Wilson's uh, uh, guarantee that we'd never suffer inflation. Now, we, of course, the government, the federal government, the state government was also forbidden to coin money and to emit bills of credit. And, but the federal government was given the power to coin money. And the interesting thing about how this uh, perversion of the constitutional intent and where it happened was in early 1791. You know, to put this in perspective, the Minting Act of 1792 hadn't come about where the dollar was defined yet. And in 1791, late 1791, the Bill of Rights was uh, ratified. So we have Washington asking three gentlemen whether he could uh, organize and incorporate a national bank. One of them was Thomas Jefferson, one was Edmund Randolph, and the third was Alexander Hamilton. And this is where the issue of state sovereignty first was mentioned. Both Hamilton and uh, Randolph answered in the negative, you can't do it. But Washington, listening to his friend who had much more influence, who wrote a long, long statement, it was almost a brief, and in this language of Alexander Hamilton, is some of the lessons the Marxists could have learned for deception. He brought in the issue of sovereignty. And you know, it wasn't John Marshall, of course, who brought it out in his famous case, I believe it was McCulloch versus Maryland. 
and mentioned the sovereignty of the United States. Nowhere was anyone, any state or, or the national government, given sovereignty by the Constitution. And of course, when you can presume sovereignty, statism, God walking on earth with Mr. Hagel, and so on, came in the picture, and that's where we are now. The Constitution, in my way of thinking, because of the importance of the money issue, which is never emphasized in school, that the Continental, as you know, 1791 is $350 for a haircut. And originally the Continental was backed by what? The Spanish no dollar, first issues. And of course there was never that much silver mined in any, in all the mines in the world after they got through printing these things. So what happened was the government of the United States became a lost, the real ball. I grant you stewardship. I think that's a better term. But since they're using sovereignty, they're usurping it even further. Because uh, the idea of the intent was the abolition of the king was to give us kingship and rulership over our property as stewards of God. And I, I will agree with that language. But this concept of, of sovereignty still exists. And, of course, the state has usurped all, uh, making us pay a rental now on our own property. And we have to do something about it. And I'm in court over it anyway. Yes. Well, you know, the Constitution makes no reference to sovereignty. It regarded it as an illegitimate term, a theological concept. And this is why what uh, first Hamilton and then Marshall did represented a very real uh, break with the Constitution. It was a part of the drift of the country from a theological to a political uh, framework. We are in that drift today and far gone in it. And that's why, of course, our basic path back has to be, first of all, theological, because this is the gut issue. If we will not have God for our sovereign, we either make ourselves sovereign or the state. And those are the two governing alternatives in our society today, man and the state as sovereign. So I, I do believe that our uh, struggle is a religious one. It's a theological one. God has to be made Lord again. Now, uh, title to property is in three forms or ownership. It can be state ownership, which is communism. It can be private ownership. Or it can be, as the Bible has it, family ownership under God. We still have relics of that in this country, in that, for example, in California, community property laws prevail. Husband and wife own property in joint tenancy. And that's a healthy uh, relic. We need to restore it. What we've done, however, is in state after state to say, yes, husband and wife, but we cut out the children. We make the state the primary heir through taxes. I'm glad to say that with a concerted effort here in California, that was defeated. Now, there is, and you may be familiar with it, it's California-based, a group named Estate, whose purpose is to abolish all federal death taxes, estate taxes. And the uh, strongest group in fighting for that 
is your farm women. Uh, city people are not aware of what's happening, but the farm wives were responsible for the changes in the uh, taxes, which raised the uh, tax-exempt level to 600 or 650,000, I believe, for an estate. That was entirely the work of farm women. Now they're working for the abolition entirely of any taxes on debt. So that's an important step, and let me add, that movement is gaining ground. Well, I think this, it's very interesting. I think theology, Rush, is an awfully long step for the average person. I think an intermediate step, which would help toward that goal, would be the restoration of history as a subject in the American educational system. Now, history contains all these lessons. Uh, in ancient Rome, families began to sequester part of the estate and give it to Caesar in the hope that Caesar would let them keep what remained. And then, of course, after enough families did that, Caesar said, from now on, you all do that. <laughs> now, this is, uh, Caesarism here does the same thing. And, uh, all your, what you have both said about sovereignty, the difference in the definition of sovereignty and so forth, is part of our history. You, you uh, recommended to me the 1828 Dictionary of Noah Webster, I believe, in which sovereignty was allied with theology and with God. But this is not taught. And here we have a population who is being taught in a contemporary sense, in the here and now, and whose historical sense has been destroyed. This applies to the judges. It applies to the lawyers. It applies to our scientists. Uh, scientists discover something new, and there's always a big argument about it, and then finally the argument straightens out and they accept what's new. But when they teach a new student about science, they never tell them about the argument. So they make it seem as though it's a natural progression from one advance to another. The same is true in medicine, the same is true in law, and so on and so forth. So... History, in my opinion, is the easiest way to get people back to the nub of the discussion. Well, Otto, uh, that's being done now. Because the Christian school movement is growing by leaps and bounds, including more children within its province every year, and is teaching history and is working to develop newer texts in history, that will teach this sort of thing. At the same time, it is teaching theology. So, uh, things are happening. Now, you remember the open house at our school. Oh, yes. And you saw the caliber of the uh, students and what they were doing. Now, those students are going to be a different breed 20 years from now than uh, the average citizen is today. And they're not going to take readily to the kind of thing that is coming from the State House and from Washington, D.C. Well, of course, if we have lawyers like that, then we have a chance in the courts. Uh, right now, I believe, it's my, I've been told, I'm not sure about this, a man goes to law school, the first year is terrible, and the second year is uh, very easy. If you survive the first year, you can say that you're going to get out of law school all right. But what are they taught? They're taught case law. They're taught what the judges have decided. Uh, they're not taught in terms of the principle, and they're not taught in terms of history, excepting that uh, in the year 1960, the Supreme Court did this. In 1972, they decided to do something else. 
So they come out like Abraham Lincoln, who, when he was asked about the Supreme Court on the Dred Scott case, said, well, the court's been wrong before, and it's changed its mind before. So it's really nothing to worry about. Yes, well, we are going to get a different kind of law school before too long. And in fact, uh, at the University of Notre Dame Law School, uh, Professor Charles Rice and Professor... Ed Murphy, are teaching what law is about from a Christian perspective. And this kind of thing, I believe, is going to spread. Well, you tell me that some of the judges you've gone before as a witness in some of these church cases have been uh, disdainful of the historical presentation. Oh, yes. Uh... This is the kind of thing you've encountered, Dr. Chapman. I've heard, uh, for example, one federal judge say that he wanted no reference to the Constitution or the First Amendment. This was in a church and state case because his decision was going to be governed purely by the last word from the Supreme Court. Now, uh, that kind of thing is not uncommon in the court. These people have relieved themselves of moral responsibility by case law. You see, the law is to obtain justice, and they've forgotten justice. It's what the Supreme Court has said on the last time they made an issue. And he, he had the brazenness to tell you this right in front of the whole group, and I don't think there was one one person... Uh, outraged outside of yourself and your your team, and I'm sure that by by that opinion. But this is what the law is all about—to establish justice, and they've forgotten justice. Right. The law is so complicated, and you see, they're not looking at what this fellow deserves, and what he deserves in equity or in law. And another thing we discussed a while ago was when the money system was completely reperverted back to paper currency. You see, no one can pay any debt at law. And if you do not pay your debt at law, but hand them the cent and a quarter worth of paper, you are not paying at law and you go into the court of admiralty. And this is why so often the judges look at you and say, well, the Constitution is not at issue here. It is not, because uh, admiralty law uh, supersedes the Constitution in, in, in time, uh, and there's a question of how far it goes, but the estimates have gone back as far as 900 B.C. And admiralty law is interested in equity only, not in punishment. And the fact is that since you cannot pay a debt at law, we have no, uh, we cannot uh, uh, extinguish a debt. We can only discharge it. And if you look on your money, it doesn't say that this note is legal tender for all debts, public and private. It says, that's what it says. It says for all debts. It does not say in payment of debts. And unless you can pay a debt at law, you do not extinguish it. And that's why Americans have built this huge debt pyramid. You can get into debt, but you can never get out. These are concepts that are just being researched by our group in Detroit, the tax group. Very sophisticated fellows are showing the lawyers the way around, and it's uh, fantastic to be in on it. Well, of course, if your taxes are eternal, your taxes run uh, every day. You pay uh, at the end of the year, but the clock keeps ticking because you're already in the new year when you pay last year's taxes. So that every time, every every waking moment that you get up, you owe money to the government. Well, what big money, though? What are the in big that taxes? sense? I guess we never get paid off. The big yeah. taxes and the taxes you feel are are the more direct taxes. The taxes on your lands, which you once you've paid for those lands, shouldn't be. And also your so-called income tax, which is a direct tax that is not levied equally. 
And yet the courts have stated that the 16th Amendment did not change the Constitution. And nobody was listening. Some of us have researched this out, and we find that the government is quite truthful when it states that the income tax is voluntary. Well, I can't believe that. First of all, you see, I think there's a fallacy here in the entire tax movement because it takes the letter of the law and says, this is it, as though here there was an eternal verity. But the point is we're a humanistic country now, and there are no verities, there are no truths. So you cannot go to any court and say, I want the truth, I want justice. Because what is justice? Pilate asked that question. What is justice? What is truth? It doesn't exist under humanism. And anyone who's going to court to seek it in terms of a humanistic faith is wasting their time. Now, I say that, and I'm one who's going to court continually as a witness in church and state cases. But what we're doing at one and the same time is to try to establish a counter-faith, Christian faith. Then we can have law. But uh, what the law says is totally meaningless. In the Bob Jones case, there was a decision of far-reaching implication that did not even attempt, I think, to find a real justification in the First Amendment. It was arbitrary. It was sociological. Did it, even, policy. Re did it even refer to the First Amendment? I have a decision. I've read it. And as I recall, there was not even anything more than a perfunctory reference to it. It was built entirely on humanistic premises of the sovereignty of the state and the fact that public policy should prevail. That was the essence of it. An undefined public policy. Yes. A public policy which is so elastic that now there are efforts to remove the tax exemption, for example, of the Catholic Church for its anti-abortion stand, to uh, remove the tax exemption of all churches for their stand against homosexuality. In other words, to reconstitute law as having some validity, we have to reconstitute Christian faith in this country beginning with the sovereignty of God. No question. No. And until we do that, we are really uh, indulging in uh, an exercise in vanity. I want to jump back again to uh, some of the remarks about case law. Case law comes from the Bible. It's not that case law is bad. It's that we have nothing behind the case law as a principle of justice. So that today case law is developed in terms of a sociological concept, in terms of the absolute justice of God. In other words, it's which cases you're selecting, for what purpose. In other words, there's all kinds of cases out there. And it's the interpretation placed on those cases and the combination of them. There's, and it's how you look at it. And if it's not from a Christian perspective, we're going to get a perversion of justice. And I agree, and I, I agree that anyone in the tax movement is at risk. Uh, I didn't say that I wasn't at risk. I'm risking my property to make a point. But I have the point that the Michigan, state of Michigan, has not made a law and uh, requiring any substance for taxation. And therefore, and I mentioned that in a republic, nothing can be compelled unless mandated by law. This is so basic that I think they're going to have a hard time walking around that and if they do, 
uh, I, I agree with you, but I just want to see how they do it. And I'm spending a lot of money and risk doing this. But I think if we don't uh, take the old Jenny off the ground and fly her, we can't go down in flames and glory either. We have to fry the courts because well, after the courts, it's the rifle. I believe that. And Lord knows I don't want it to ever get that far because we're going to lose because they've got all the guns right now. And I think that, uh, uh, but we have to educate judges. And that's a very difficult thing. Well, I think, you know, we come on to these topics from different angles. Uh, one of the things that is really uh, remarkable about the average man in the modern world is that he's had to accept things on faith from scientists that he cannot understand, he cannot prove, cannot disprove. Uh, he cannot, for instance, uh, really fathom or understand nuclear energy, yet he knows it works. And he was told that it works, and he's seen the effects of it. Uh, in the same way, we have all sorts of mechanical marvels, and then we have, on top of these mechanical marvels, we have sociologists and psychiatrists who tell us, tell the average person things that are not provable or disprovable about human motivations and behavior, about the nature of society, and so on. So we have here an entire population, which includes the professional classes, by the way, who have already accepted a great many impossibilities, like Alice in Wonderland. They've accepted seven impossible things before breakfast. So therefore, they can make impossible rulings, and they know that they have a population that will accept the impossible judgment. Now, we have... Uh, we have a case uh, just the other day, uh, a week, where a man was taken into the execution chamber in Texas. He had his last supper, and uh, then he was reprieved and taken out of the execution chamber and put back into the cell. And the reprieve, I guess, was considered merciful. And so forth. So, uh, in this kind of irrational atmosphere, uh, you go to court to see what you can do. I think it's a good thing to go to court. I think one should try to dispute what he does not believe to be true. Uh, and I do think that if there are enough disputes, that it'll be a repetition of the rebels before the High Commission. The government is going to have to present a more plausible case because people are beginning willy-nilly to think for themselves, despite the fact that they're told in so many words, leave it to the experts, we know better than you do. At least the law should be understandable to all citizens, otherwise how can they be expected to respect or obey the law? Well, I feel that when we fight, we have to fight in terms of the future. That's why the only cases I go to court for are essentially with regard to the First Amendment because there I'm fighting for the education of the children who are going to make the future because the Christian school is creating a new kind of person, a person who is seeing his faith applied to every area of life. Now, I think if we're fighting just for property, important as property is, we're fighting defensively. And we've got to take the offensive. That's why the battle has to be fought essentially in the area of Christian education. Not your income or my income not your property or my property, important as those things are. Because uh, nothing is being done there to develop the presuppositions of a new culture, of a Christian culture. But every time we safeguard the freedom of a Christian school, we are then 
working to create a new future. Now, I made two trips to Australia this year, and I'm delighted with what's happening there because a movement is underway. Bill Ball and I went there in June, and I went again in August. And the net result of that is they've gone to court, they've won the first round for the freedom of the Christian child. Oh, I didn't know they won the first round. Yes. So now there's a disentangling. For the first time, you're getting children who are going to be trained in independence from the state, because up until now, the state has controlled the parochial schools. Up until now, do you mean Australians couldn't have a private school? All their schools were government schools? They could have a private or a Christian parochial school, school, but the state controlled it. The state subsidized it. The state required the teachers to belong to a state-controlled union. Now, for the first time, that's been challenged, and a victory has been won. So, this means a very real freedom. Now, one of the effects of that, <laughs> which is going to affect a lot of the compromising schools, which means most of them, is that the state is going to start punishing by withdrawing the funds. Yes. So, willy-nilly, these yes. other schools are going to have to make a stand. Oh, they don't get you on Monday, they'll get you <laughs> on Tuesday. Uh, don't you have the feeling that the, the Marxist graduated income tax that we all know is the second plank of the old Communist Manifesto really got its warp and hoof through the exemptive process not who it taxed, but who it didn't tax. And you see Bob Jones, you see the situation there in Australia, always a matter of exemption. Never on who you're taxing so much as the exemption, especially in a corporate situation. And I just wanted you to comment Yes, well, on that. I think the income tax came in because it was necessary. It wasn't good, it was evil but it was necessary. It was necessary because you have to have social financing. Christians earlier were providing for the elderly. You had all kinds of homes, Catholic and Protestant, for the elderly. I can remember some of them still when I was a child. You had homes for delinquent children and orphanages. You had all kinds of Catholic and Protestant welfare agencies. But little by little, those things were dropped by the wayside and people quit tithing. What, what period was this? Well, what From time? 1860 to about 1940, there was a steady retreat of the Christian churches from these areas. Wasn't, didn't it follow mainly World War One? Wasn't that Especially the then, okay. yes. Now, we had a fractional reserve system in 1913, and people were getting poor. Part of the problem here in private financing is that America is rapidly becoming poorer now, and we can all see it. But we couldn't quite see it when fractional reserve system. It goes back to very greedy bankers diluting out the capital available. And I'm merely stating that this is when, where you say, well, it was necessary a new tax. But is a new tax necessary when you have instituted an extremely cruel but subtle old tax? And that's exactly what happened. This is the real growth of statism at the expense of the people. And of course the people say, well, that's why we've got to have this income tax, because the other taxes, nobody will take care of these poor people now, so we've got to get government. I think that is the most serious error that any of us can make. Yes, but you see, before the federal and the state government stepped into welfare, the churches had withdrawn. They had withdrawn. The Depression of 1907 was the last time you had major organized efforts by churches 
to deal with the problem. The 1907 the panic was the Morgan money shift, the gold shift to Canada. Remember that? And they sent the group over there abroad, and they lived. They spent a hundred and some thousand dollars with Quetta, the committee, and then came back. And of course said we've got to solve these banking problems and institute the Federal Reserve. 1907 was that year when we had that panic that was solved by the man that caused it, and uh, he became a hero. But getting what I'm getting back here is that the whole system, I believe, is because it was tampered with by government, the whole cause, and to give government more is to commit suicide. Man has to have a God. When he rejects the God of Scripture, he's going to make the state his God. And that's what we had done long before any of these people came around. So it was just a logical step to have the income tax. Now, if we get back to tithing, if we get back to doing things God's way, we're going to eliminate that. What we're doing right now is step-by-step step to eliminate public education. We see now all kinds of agencies to deal with welfare and other problems like that. Now, that's the only way we're going to defeat them. The only thing is, do you think the people who are in a downslide in their standard of living are going to be able to afford to tithe on top of that and be willing to when their children are taught that evolution is a matter of fact. These are the things that we're coming well, in a, then too. And but there's very a Christian important. revival going on. Oh, I know that. Well, but I say uh, that I don't, I'm not saying, I'm not arguing against you, but I'm trying to look at causes and the loss of faith. But through these faith things. is coming back. And well, it's yeah, the... I hope so. Well, you saw it the, today. Oh, there's no question. All right. Now, it's the people on the lower economic level today who are beginning to tie. We have thousands of people on our mailing list. I get letters from them all the time. I rarely ever get anything from a man of great wealth. In fact, I don't believe I ever have. I get something from men of moderate means. I get a great deal from very poor people. They're tithes, 10%. And they're giving to other groups as well. So what we're seeing today is people with the least means who are creating a changed country because they're saying it has to be done God's way. Now, this is what's creating a new future. And I don't believe it's going to be created any other way. I don't believe God is going to bless people if they're going to fight for their incomes rather than for their children and their children's future. So we are, I believe, at the crossroads of history. We are on the greatest crisis in civilization. The last days of Rome are nothing compared to what the world is facing between now and the end of the century and especially probably in this decade. And it's the people with the least means who are doing the greatest. I could take you to some groups, some black ghetto groups, who are creating Christian schools, who are creating welfare agencies to minister to people who are down and out, who are housing people, who are street people. And they're doing all this when you look at them and you say, these people are so poor, how can they help anyone else? But they're saying, the Lord requires me to tithe, and the Lord will bless me if I do. Now, we're seeing a major revival today in this country that's beginning to change the ghettos among blacks. There is more Christian vitality there where they're getting tremendous hostility from some of their leaders who are on federal and state payrolls and who are hoodlums, who are lawless, 
tremendous hostility. But the things they are doing are dramatic. They're changing the country. There's no excuse for any of us not to do it God's way because it's the only way God's going to bless and it's going to mean victory. Well, I think our time is just about up. I believe this has been a continuation, Otto, of our session on the Constitution. Because I think it's it has, yeah. Basically the same issue. Right. And uh, we had an opportunity to deal with some of the same gut issues mm -hmm. again. So mm -hmm. it's been a delightful session, and thank you, Dr. Chapman. We uh, have enjoyed the exchange of ideas. Uh, we don't want to discourage you in what you're doing because you have to do what you feel God wants you to do. But we have to do what we believe God requires of us. Well, there's no argument there for me. Good. Thank you. Well, we'll be with you again in two weeks.